Hello everybody and welcome to the first edition of More Room Mis More Spos where you'll hear music, poetry, news, views, interviews and anything else that crosses my mind as I'm putting this show together. Um, first of all, the theme music is by Robin James Hurt, a good friend of mine. And every show will open with that. Love you, give me earth. Don't be afraid. If I suddenly start speaking in Irish, I'll um, It will usually be a rough translation of the preceding English. Uh, I've been to loving the language, and although I'm not fluent, I take every opportunity to keep my limited vocabulary in use. To a lesser degree, there may be instances where des petits morceaux de français may be heard. Another language I enjoy experimenting with, sonically, which leads me to the Tour de France, which I've been enjoying immensely, uh, especially seeing Sam Bennett in the green jersey, first time an Irish man wore one in the Tour since 1989, that was Sean Kelly. And uh, then, Nico Rocho also on the podium on the same stage for The Bravest Man. Uh, yeah, the TG Car coverage is Osgelge, the Gestuk Lisham Virtual And that leads into Tatnava Wanamas Kanchi Vranj Kish. I will have a track on my album in French. Uh, which I wrote with the help of my good friend Cynthia Davis. And uh, I'm going to start with a track by a French lady, Soy Me Le Cure of Fa Francais, a toy in a corny in Erin, or Fa Rides Brandonish. Yes, Lauren Guillory, singer songwriter, now living in West Cork uh, for quite a few years. Uh, she played for On the Verge several times. During lockdown, she's been keeping herself busy with craft work, herbal remedies, etc. But I'm going to play you a track from her most recent album, Disaster in La La Land. And the title of that is As Fast As I Could, which kind of suits the Tour de France vibe.
fast as I could
obviously no comment on the pandemic after that track would be rather remiss but instead of the present one I'm going to slip into an interview I produced for the history program on Dublin South FM over 10 years ago uh, it's uh, Eamon Darcy who I believe is still in academia I think at Maynooth um, in history uh, interviewing Ida Milne uh, who is the author of the book Stacking the Coffin Influenza, War and Revolution in Ireland 1918 to 1919 and it's basically an interview about the Spanish flu of 100 years ago Good afternoon everybody Today I'm joined uh, by Ida Milne who's working on a book on the Spanish flu in Ireland now, the Spanish flu in many ways has parallels with swine flu that has just gripped the country in the recent months and the panic that ensued afterwards, followed by, uh, well, uh, great governmental efforts to, 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 to make sure we all clean our hands. Ida, welcome to the show. Thank you, Eamon. Now, tell me this, Ida. Um, what was uh, the Spanish flu like and when did it circulate? Spanish flu uh, came in at the tail end of the First World War. Uh, it arrived here first in, uh, first in Belfast and and then in Dublin in June in 1918. And that was quite a mild um, episode. Uh, it arrived, spread almost sim- simultaneously around the world in three waves. And the Irish waves were, again, more or less parallel with the waves in other parts of the world. Uh, was it similar to the panic caused by the spread of swine flu? Um, I mean, like, was 19, the 1918 variation of influenza, like, much, was, is it similar to what, what spread with swine flu or what, what happened with it? The flus are both H- A- influenza A, H1, N1 okay. uh, types, so they are a similar flu type. Okay. But the type of panic, I, I imagine, was, was possibly quite similar because... Um, at the end of every great war, it was assumed that some big disease would emerge out of it. So when the flu first came to Belfast, they called it a mysterious malady or a dreadful scourge. And they thought it was really going to wipe everybody out. And I've interviewed people who've told me of clusters of adults standing, standing talking about uh, the flu, this thing coming and how you know it was going to kill maybe 50% of all the adults. Oh. But that didn't actually happen. And was it seen as like, a, at this time, as an inter- was it interpreted as... A punishment from God for the war or was it anything like that or was it just because they knew of poor health conditions in, the, in Europe at the time or how was it, how was it interpreted? I think it was more to do with the poor health conditions the notion of miasmas of the, of the stench come, coming off rotting corpses and uh, that kind of thing and there was a lot of illness coming home with the soldiers with from the, the troops, war of course yeah. yes and so World War I had a, a huge impact on it as well but why was it why, what sort of role did that have and why was it called Spanish flu was that something to do with Spain in World War One? Spanish flu is as you're pointing out it's really a misnomer um, because uh, Spain had no Spain really wasn't involved in the war and it had no it had no censorship so its papers were able to report the flu spreading and by the time it was reported as having influenced um, having infected the king of Spain and um, I think it was about 3,000 of his courtiers it had already hit and was silencing the troops of Germany the US and the British and the French it was uh, it was silencing the battlefields so it actually affected a lot of famous people as well because I think Woodrow Wilson um, contracted it as did FDR I think at one stage as well and even Lloyd George who was hospitalised he he was on um, a two 
tour, I think it was Manchester now, he ended up having to stay in the town hall um, for a, a couple of days until the fever subsided. Woodrow Wilson, you mentioned, is very interesting because he caught it during this, uh, the Paris Peace Conference. and oh, there, Versailles. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. And there is an argument that after he caught Spanish flu, his personality changed severely. Now, he was a very ill man anyway. He had other health issues, uh, but that he became quite paranoid. Oh, and, and this, yeah. um, this affected his later yeah, political yeah. outlook. And, and paranoia was, was, was a feature of, of um, is a feature still. Uh, sometimes people get quite paranoid getting the flu or whatever and in I the w- aftermath. I wonder as well, because, I mean, I, I, we're talking in the early 20th century. There were other mm. outbreaks of, of um, disease like typhoid and things like yeah. that. And I, So was Spanish flu seen, uh, in, in the context of other diseases, was, was it seen as a worse thing to get? Or was it just another in a long line of these, these con- the spread of contagion? like uh, pandemic of, of an almost plague-like proportions. Well, I, I think there was, a, the, the, there was this kind of biblical prophetic thing that there were going to there was going to be one big disease that would emerge out of the, out of the war, yeah. and possibly like the, the biggest war usually would be things like VD for soldiers or so, uh, for soldiers returning home, yeah. and there was a special uh, war committee in the UK that was was a, a multi uh, disciplinary um, committee that was set up to look at what possible diseases would be. Um, would, that the soldiers would bring a home with them. Oh, and they, they so they, they really were quite a, quite actively thinking of something like this coming home with them. But I think they may have been thinking of other diseases like, you know, a, a pox virus or, or something like that Along that would, that would spread, yeah. Of course. And yeah. so within an Irish context, how's, how, did the Irish, uh, how did the Irish authorities at the time attempt to deal with the spread of, of Spanish flu? The Irish authorities, the local government board would have been the body that looked after sanitary conditions and after uh, the poor law medical system, which would have, um, you know, would have been the main system that, that the poorer sections of society would have had free access to a, to a, to a doctor through that. Um, they really didn't have any great national plan. Now, the local government board has an interesting composition. Um, it included uh, the authorities in Dublin Castle um, and... Um, the, ma- the main um, links between Dublin Castle and the government, uh, local yeah, government, the ch- I'd imagine, so they would dictate yeah, a lot. Yeah, the chief of- secretary and yes. Sir Henry Robinson and various other people. So uh, Dublin Castle would have dictated to the policy. Extent, what Just, was going on. Yeah. But it, like, uh, at the same time, it was probably down to individual local, local yeah. government boards as well. But really, the management of each individual area fell into the hands of the local boards of guardians. And okay. they were actually... the direct employer of the doctors under the system and they kept calling these boards of guardians you'll see, see appeals in the newspapers all the time for the people in Dublin Castle for the local government board in the custom house to do something about this terrible scourge to yes. give them some help and they do appeal continually for doctors and for nurses doctors were more important in the scheme of things at yeah. that stage nursing oh. systems weren't so, so well were developed doc- like, Were doctors on the front or was it just a shortage of doctors in the there was a shortage of medical do- of doctors because okay. doctors were away at the front. Okay. And there was also a ban on employing any doctor of military service age. So th- that meant oh. that the stock was quite limited. And you have yeah. an ageing stock as well yeah. in, the, in yeah. that case as well. And then you're asking these ageing doctors to work around the clock. Like I've, I've heard of, of stories of, of, there was one particular doctor, Dr. Rafferty and Bray, his, he wrote into to, um, um, 
the local government board um, telling what he'd done one Saturday that, that, that he'd visited more than 70 houses with more than 300 people in more than 300 cases in one day and if you work that out if you allow him six hours to sleep you know it, it takes 18 hours 15 minutes per house and he had no time to eat or anything and um, the doctors worked tremendously hard and because a lot of them were old as you've pointed out um, a lot of them you know, their health suffered from, from the flu, as from fatigue, as oh, well fatigue. as from actually catching flu, which many of them did. I'll never complain of being busy again. No. <laughs> and I, I've actually managed to... to did, uh, I interviewed a man in, in North Kildare, Tommy Christian, who told me uh, he was five when the flu came. Um, he's still alive and, oh. and in good health. And um, he told me that... Um, the doctor came at three o'clock in the morning, so they literally did work around they the clock. Around mm. the clock. That's mm. amazing. Mm. And did you find many other testimonies um, from survivors of Spanish flu or people from the time uh, uh, of other doctors and the great work they were doing as well? Like, how did they perceive the state's role in all this? Did they think that there was a? a did they recognise the shortest of doctors, or did they say the state has actually failed us, or was there an expectation on the state? To, to they they really criticised um, the state for for not helping them, okay. and they. Came Kept, as I say, demanding and demanding that the, that the, the the boards of government and the doctor, uh, the, sorry, the boards of guardians and and the doctors would ask for more help to come, but there was no more help to be had, and the the local government board would just wash their hands and say, "What can we do? There's no more staff. We just can't give you any." Oh God! Yeah. yeah. So and it was quite difficult. Quite difficult at the, at the time. And mm-hmm. how did people then, in their recollections of the Spanish flu, how did they describe it? Like, is it, I remember listening to a, a pneumonia patient describe yeah. the pain that they went through and. It was actually my granny that, that told yeah. me about this, and she had it at quite a young age. And she remembers um, at one stage uh, being covered in six or seven blankets, not being allowed to touch the wall because the wall would help her cool down. Because the the thing, what the trick was to sweat sweat ah, it out. Yeah. Uh, so I wondered, like, what sort of remedies were brought about, uh, or what were used, deployed yeah. to um, combat the flu? The remedies were so different to what we conceive of as being good medicine today. Uh, okay. Vaccination, for a start, was was it. it its infancy. But even when they administered a vaccine, um, and there was no quality control really on these vaccines, so there could be anything in them. Um, even when they administered a vaccine, they would give it to somebody who already had the flu. Whereas now our notion of how to give a vaccine would be that you'd give it as a prophylactic measure. Uh, And then the treatments that they had, again, um, um, doctors were very keen on uh, purging the, cleaning out your bowels. So they'd give you something called calomel. And calomel has, I think, mercury chloride in it, which is quite a toxic substance. But it would certainly clean out your bowels. And then there are other things like tinctures of iodine, um, uh, tincture of creosote to gargle with. Oh, okay. You know, that's something we don't even put on fences anymore. Um uh, so they tried to cure this with poison, basically. Yeah, basically. Oh. So one of the most effective uh, thing cures that people seem to have, because again, you don't have your paracetamol yeah. in, in convenient packs like we do today. They used whiskey quite a lot. And a lot of people talk over and over again. I've, I've interviewed about 50 people now in their 90s. And they talk over and over again of being fed whiskey when they were four or five years of age. And it actually worked. It seemed to work. And one um, uh, man who lived around Leonard's Corner told me that um, 
because there was a belief that this flu struck younger people, you know, uh, people between the ages of 15 and 25, yes. uh, young adults, and that they were more likely to die from it. This man, his, his father had told him that when his brother caught the flu, he kept him constantly drunk for three weeks and the brother survived. And he put it down to whiskey being the cure. So they, they believed that it literally was the water of life. It, it yeah, matter yeah. In, the, in, this res, in this respect. And, and there was ha- one doctor in Carlo who actually he used to take a drink of whiskey before he went into every single household. And it obviously worked because he lived. Was he working around the clock as well? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> I'm, I hope he had a driver. Oh, well, I also hope he wasn't sued for malpractice <laughs> yeah. at some point as yeah. well. Well, that's very interesting. Uh, and like, so what kind of... Um, you mentioned that, that there were groups of people standing waiting around for for, for the, the latest news on what was happening with white flu. So, like, how did it affect the city as a whole? Well, in Dublin City, the, the, the flu lasted really from June 1918 in three big waves. Mm. Um, uh, there was a second wave between October and December of 1918, and then it came back again in February through April of 1919, and after that, it was gone. It was gone. You know, there might have been small pockets around the country somewhere, but you don't really find it. After that, I presume we had immunity to it, and it was gone. But over the, it had killed uh, 2,800 people in Dublin. County um, over the over that period, and as a percentage of the population rate, that was that. Um, I think the population was about four hundred thousand at the time, if I remember correctly. But it gave a death rate in the first year of three point seven per thousand living, and in the second year of two point three per thousand living in Dublin city, which isn't actually it's it's high. Yes, but County Kildare had a higher. Incidents of death. And it kind of contradicts what you'd expect because you'd expect densely populated urban areas to have worse. But Kildare had worse experience for, for us, I think, because it was particularly NACE that caused the death, the, the, the high death rate. Uh, and th- that was down to local fo- factors. They had no, there was limited water supply. Ah, okay. okay. So a lot of the poulticing treatment for flu. Um, and you know you need a constant supply of hot drinks, hot water to to poultice and to, and, and to keep people hydrated. And the other thing was that the gas company uh, was completely uh, wiped out by the flu. That it only operated for a couple of hours a week. And uh, between that and the cold, cold, the staff ill with flu and the coal shortage, um, it found very diff- It was very difficult for it to keep going. And um, so people hadn't liked and they hadn't. Um, uh, a means of cooking. Oh my God, that's, that's so it really mm. crippled uh, Claire yeah. in, the, in yeah. that respect. Yeah. And you were mentioning, uh, sorry, I mentioned at the start that you were writing a book on this yeah. uh, and uh, you've obviously had a few interviews with people who, who've luckily uh, or have, are still alive uh, at this stage. Um, would, would you have any requests for, for our listeners out there um, regarding your work? Yes, I'd love to, um, you know, anybody who, who could phone me, Ida Millen at 87 994 Anybody who whose family have a direct experience of flu, or somebody maybe who's still in their nineties or or better, who who um, would like to talk to me and tell me their story, because I think it's really important these stories have told. Because Spanish flu was forgotten for many many years, and uh, you know if if there, if we're ever going to get a, as big a pandemic again, uh, we need to know how to manage it and how to look at it. Even, even as historians, it's it's important for us to look at these and things and see what happens. On a, per, 
on a yeah. personal level, see, see, very much because so, there yeah. were, were a lot of families left orphaned and things like that, and and it's just to see what happens would you know to see what happened rather than just just looking at ball statistics. It makes a far fuller picture. Definitely, definitely. Well, Ida, thank you very much uh, for coming along today. And Ida's number again uh, for our listeners out there who who may be able to help Ida. Um, her number is oh eight seven two two zero seven. 994. Ida, thank you so much. I hope that, uh, I hope something comes up, uh, I hope somebody uh, remembers the Spanish flu and and gets in touch with you. Um, Thank you so much for coming along today. Thank you. Thanks everybody for listening to History Show. Uh, Dr. Raymond Darcy there interviewing Ida Milne in 2009 about her book Stacking the Coffins, Influenza, War and Revolution in Ireland, 1918 to 1919. There's another huge global problem that has been exacerbated by COVID and it's the fact that millions of refugees are searching for a safe home, Och Thavolcha, on this planet. You uh, have United Nations latest global trends report shows that 79.5 million people were forcibly displaced at the end of 2019. Now that is fully 1% of humanity, or put another way, one in every 97 people on Earth. In you, by me, a country group of ethnachawan in a mean simagamag akerson, the father law, shin na Kurds. Uh, today I'm speaking about the Kurds um, for those who are unaware of their plight to give it a bit of attention. In 1996 I obtained, uh, as a mature student, uh, City of Guilds Awards in Media Production at Pierce College in Crumlin in South Dublin. The modules included video and radio production, presentation, photography, uh, paid setting and print journalism. And for the exam exercise of feature writing, I researched and wrote about the Kurdish people under the headline, Kurds in Way Again, um, unapologetically using the nursery rhyme phrase. Miss Muffet it was. Um, now, the Kurds make up the fourth largest ethnic group in the Middle East, but they have never obtained a permanent nation state. Recent Turkish military activity has brought that article to mind once more, and I think that a seemingly toothless United Nations should be ensuring the security of their race and culture within some form of negotiated free Kurdistan, rather than ignoring a rampant Turkish offensive which is going on at the moment. A bit more background uh, as part of my research at the time was that the Kurds are an Iranic ethnic group of about 35 million people native to a mountainous region of Western Asia which spans southeastern Turkey, northeastern Iran, northern Iraq and northern Syria. As you know, all recent hotspots for tribal and sect warfare and it's more or less since the early 1900s. Uh, um, in the early 20th century, many Kurds began to consider the creation of a homeland generally referred to as Kurdistan. Uh, after World War I and the defeat of the Ottoman Empire, the Turkish Empire, uh, who were German allies, the victorious Western allies made provision for a Kurdish state in the 1920 Treaty of Sevres. 
Such hopes were dashed three years later, however, when the Treaty of Lausanne, which set the boundaries of modern Turkey, made no provision for a Kurdish state and left Kurds with minority status in all of their respective countries. Over the next 80 years, any move by the Kurds to set up an independent state was brutally quashed. Uh, there's a deep-seated hostility between the Turkish state and the country's Kurds, who constitute up to 20% of the population. Uh, Kurds have received harsh treatment at the hands of the Turkish authorities for generations. Uh, in response to uprisings in the 1920s and 30s, many Kurds were resettled, Kurdish names and costumes were banned, the use of the Kurdish language was restricted, and even the existence of a Kurdish ethnic identity was denied, with, peace, with people instead being designated Mountain Turks, inverted commas. In 1978, Abdullah Ocalan established the PKK, which called for an independent state within Turkey. Six years later, the group began an armed struggle, and since then, more than 40,000 people have been killed and hundreds of thousands displaced. More recently, in the war against ISIS, the uh, Islamic Caliphate, the Kurds fought alongside several local Arab militias under the banner of the Syrian Democratic Forces, SDF, and helped by US-led coalition airstrikes, weapons and advisors. They steadily drove Islamic Caliphate fighters out of tens of thousands of square kilometers of territory in northeastern Syria and established control of a large stretch of the border with Turkey. Once again, however, they have been abandoned by their allies and are being forced from their hard-fought-for homes, villages and cities. I'm going to play a track now by Ailer uh, uh, Dojan, um, contemporary Kurdish singer and musician from Turkey. Uh, I came across her when I used to do the One World program for a while, a few years on Dublin South. Uh, she sings in Turkish and Kurdish and uh, the political tone of her songs is deliberately provocative. She's quoted as saying, there are always people who view singers like me as a danger. They don't want the Kurds to be culturally self-confident. 5,000 people attended one of my concerts in Istanbul when but when I sung my second song, which was in Kurdish, almost half of the audience started booing. I had to cancel the concert. In 2017, Einer received the Master of Mediterranean Music Award in the category of Mediterranean Women in Action from the Berkeley Mediterranean Music Institute. This award recognized Einar's efforts to preserve and reinterpret Kurdish folk music. Her 2010 release, Revend, uh, focuses on itinerancy and connection to the homeland and includes the ethnic conflict with the Kurds. I've taken this track, Daughter, from the album.
Saturn devoured her child. Instead, she was accommodating chaos. Instead, just like an insect in my eye. Instead, she was tilting at windmills. She said, "Jesus is real to me." Then she showed me the stills of a film called "Through a Shot Glass Darkly." Tattoos in a hypnotic trance. We were just fugitives, baby, at the mercy of circumstance. Nobody cares about our whereabouts now. Doctor. For the 
bad blues prescription. I said, Doc, I've been murdered by thoughts of a BA dues inscription. Then she bought a whiskey, used it to slick back her hair. You're my floor de mer. You're my moon shaped basket case, honey bee. You're my season in hell. It's funny somehow how some people get destroyed. While all the radio DJs are playing white noise Human story track there by Kevin Nolan, which was titled Human Story, and uh, he released that as a single earlier this year. I'm uh, also really looking forward to hearing his brand new album, uh, a copy of which is Winging Its Way Towards Me Now by a snail mail. Kevin, of course, fronted Frederick and the Golden Dawn, who made many appearances at On The Verge sessions, uh, really enjoyable ones as well, and always surprising. And speaking of human stories, uh, a huge one, obviously, the George Floyd murder. And I think it's changed everyone's conception of America. Um, I've been astounded by the stories on police immunity, white supremacy tolerance, systemic racism and uh, last but not least a presidential belief in unknowable dark, dark forces, forces plotting his downfall I agree with Fintan O'Toole who the Irish Times expressed pity for the United States over US President Donald Trump's leadership uh, an emotion he never thought likely in his lifetime nor mine I'm old enough to remember where I was when JFK was assassinated in Dallas, but uh, through countless subsequent wars, disasters, tragedies, the US has always been respected for its protection of democracy and its ability to recover economically and be the most important global trade market. I'm a bit worried now about Ireland's over-dependence on American high-tech conglomerates. I think it's a mistake and may soon lead to disastrous economic trends and further recession in this country. I'm going to play a track now from the ironically titled God Bless America by Gideon Wagner. 
an acquaintance of mine from London who uh, came to play at an On The Verge gig in Whelan's in 2001. I got a little backing band together for him and uh, that included Brian Toolbox O'Toole and Dave Stickmeister Shorten. And we had a couple of really enjoyable days together in the Temple Bar rehearsal rooms. Gideon grew up in the Jewish faith and was a cantor in synagogues in London. He honed his musical career as support act to, to acts like Kilburn on the High Roads, uh, Ian Jury and the Blockheads, Graham Parker and the Rumour, among others. But I was highly surprised and amused when he came on stage dressed in a Moroccan kaftan, cowboy boots, a Stetson and Ray-Bans and announced, Hello Dublin, we are the Jews for Allah. This track from God Bless America is called I'm a Pig. I want more than I really need 
Don't from exercise. She's a good sex worker. She likes her job. Doesn't try to put me down or make me feel guilty about being a man. Cause I'm a man. I'm a man. I'm a man. I'm a man. She's a good sex worker. She likes her job. Doesn't try to put me down or make me She said the word delicious. She took off her clothes in the back seat. Her breath was getting fast. <gasps> she said she wanted to bite it. Oh, she's a good sex worker, she likes her job Doesn't try to put me down Or make me feel guilt about being a man Cause I'm a man, I'm a man, I'm a man, I'm a oh, man She's a good I'm sex alive. worker, she likes her job Seem to be happy. We seem to be happy. Thank you. Give us that chord again. Oh, I left the city in the bright lights and I was feeling happy, sad And I didn't have no money problems, I was living a dream I had And I was living down the farm and I weren't doing nobody no harm I would even help them if I can, I'd play my guitar all night long And then the police came down to my house to arrest me They told me I committed a crime they came right up to my door to collect me They said I'd done it too many times And I said, if I found Richie Tits or Big Ass Bodega 
our phone had a booby and booby. Oh, yeah. This time I'm the one. This time I'm the one, baby. This time I'm the one. I left the city of the bright lights. No money problems. I was living a dream I had. I didn't have no money problems. And I'd help them all night long. And then the police came down to my house to arrest me. Told me I committed a crime. They ride up to my door to let me. They said I done it too many times. And I said, "Fuck out, put your tits on, big ass potato." Let's not bone had a booby and booby. Oh yeah. This time I'm the one, baby. This time I'm the one. This time I'm the one, baby. This time I'm the one. Oh yeah! Thank you. Yeah, thanks very much. That one was like uh, moving down the country, you know, when you're a city slicker and just uh, treading on everybody's toes and causing loads of shit and, you know, typical run-of-the-mill stuff. Run-of-the-farm mill. Yeah. I had the run-of-the-farm. That was the problem. Yeah.
You're a stinking audience. This next one is called Rat. Okay, um, it's about, uh, I think it's about psycho psychotherapy, is it? Psychotherapy. Oh, yeah, yeah. Male sexual submissiveness. I 
gotta talk to the doctor Slouch on the couch, I just feed him What I want him to hear He knows there's something wrong with me, I'm sure He can read between the lines Well, I just don't tell him cause I'm too fucked up to tell it all now What I really like I'm right And I learned to survive Yeah, I'm right And I learned to survive
wonder over there on the, the left flank. That's the rat itself. The sculptor of sound. That is Pigeon. Okay. Rat. Muck Pigeon. Pigeon, sorry. This next song is called I Can See Evil. That's over there. I can see evil. I see that in people I drift through life like a screwed up spawn I put on pressure, I can, I can second guess you It doesn't matter, riddle me this Brothers and sisters, huh? have I done? This man's father is my father's son I was a duck and I had an injury And a woman called Sharon for pity on me I felt my heartbeat quicken I was getting dizzy, so I lay down in the soft sand And all around the dark grass loomed Dark clouds gathered Getting wet My cigarette fell to the ground I couldn't feel my legs so I got up and started walking I saw a spaceman made of light As I approached he turned into a child And I thought too many thoughts 
too many hours in the day And I looked out at the dark sea And all the bright lights shining Lonely, 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 lonely Of life's party on the outside looking in. Okay. My sweet darling Alice, my confessor and rock Sleeps gently beside me, her hand on my cock I feel alright I feel alright Sister Bud, now, now she's, she's mine, we all tie. We all right. We all right. We all right. Everyone said that I would wind up sad. And I'd end up being a bum, just, just like, like my old dad. Colombian, white, or Mexican, Mexican brown, we do all right. Yeah, we do all right. Yeah, we do all right. I'm so broke anyway. And when Alice comes home to watch TV, I love those quiet moments, just her and me and the I feel alright. I feel alright. I feel alright. Mr. Fudge has. Mr. Fudge has. 
loves hat And I'd end up being a bum Just like my old dad when they were wrong We do all right Yeah, we do all right right. That's right, we do all right Okay, let me tell you My sweet darling Alice My confessor and rock Sleeping gently beside me Her hand on my cock I feel alright I feel alright Thank you Thank you this is a little song we picked up in America. It's by the JDs.
idea, but I tossed it. It just got in the way. And I got funny with the money. But it did not pay. And I got funny with the dumbest. Keep it in your pocket. Save it for a rainy day. Hey, 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 hey. Big hand for Trevor on the drums. Trevsky on the drums. It's his birthday. All right, one more chorus and we'll call it a night, right? One more time. Oh, yeah. Not, not this one, not this one. The next one. Not this one, this one. How you got? Too loose to goose step. Throwing on the rocket. Keep it in your Too loose to goose step. Throwing on the rocket. Keep it in